One of the great hallmarks of fallen humanity is our ability to be almost entirely apathetic about the most important things in life while simultaneously being obsessively passionate about things that mean almost nothing. Case in point, if, if you go on the streets of Philly today, right now, and you, you, you say to someone, you know what, I think Jesus is better than Buddha. You know what they'd say? Whatever. Okay, you can believe whatever you want to believe. But if to that same fellow you said, you know what, I think Tony Romo is better than Michael Vick, you would be taking your life in your own hands. Like this, this is not something that you just pass over. This is a, a passionate issue in our society. If you um, asked some people, said, I, I would really encourage you to give $400. For $400, you can feed, and this is true, you can feed a hungry orphan for an entire year. Will you give $400? You know, people, most people would say, they would say, wow, you know what, that's a good thing. I'd like to, but $400, I just don't have $400. That's so much. Like, I don't have that money to give. I can't do that right now. But if you told those same people, for $400, I can give you a $795 iPhone. For $400, do you know what they would say? They would fall all over themselves, getting out their wallet to give you their credit card and say, I'll take two. YouTube. YouTube is a good marker of the things that we value. If you were to take a world-class philosopher giving a world-class program about a question that we all want to know, something like, what does it mean to be human, Dr. Ravi Zacharias? Well, you'd be lucky to get 5,187 views. Now, if you took a couple of Norwegian guys and you dressed them up in a fox costume and you asked the age-old question, what does the fox say? You would get at least 163 million. In fact, this morning, there were 2 million more since I made this slide last night. 2 million views last night. So I'll say it again. The human heart has the amazing ability to be completely apathetic about some of the most important, most crucial, obviously most valuable things in the world while simultaneously being obsessively, compulsively passionate about things that mean nothing. And I'm not just pointing fingers here. I'm not like those heathens out there. Because the reality is, is that I would love to get in a passionate debate about Tony Romo. While holding an iPhone and watching Norwegian comedians saying, what does the fox say? But before you judge me, I would encourage you to judge yourselves. Do me one favor. Take a moment to reflect. Just one or two seconds to reflect on what does your heart naturally get excited about? What, what are your wants, your desires, your loves? What are the things that you're drawn to? So let's play a little game. It's called Would You Rather. Okay? Would you rather sit at home and watch TV or show up and hear a GVF missionary report? Maybe Bill Campbell this past Thursday. Ooh, that wasn't fair. Would, would you rather watch two and a half hour mov long movie or pray for ten minutes? Would you rather 
devote every evening and every Saturday morning to making sure your child's character and knowledge of God develops properly? Or would you rather devote every evening and every Saturday morning to making sure your kid knows how to throw a ball or play an instrument? Would you rather talk to someone about Jesus or pretty much anything else? If we're honest and reasonably self-aware, and I'm not pretending that we are either of those, we're at church, for goodness sake. But if we are, it usually should take us about 1.3 seconds to discover that our wicked little hearts care deeply about the wrong things. That we love and desire and want things that we shouldn't love or desire or want and that we care very, very little about things that are most important. Yeah. It's funny. And today Jesus is going to have a funny little question for us. He's going to say, do you know your own heart? Like if you were to stop and think, what do I want? Like what do I really want? Not, not what do I say I want, but what do I pursue with my life? What controls my life? What dominates it? What affects the decisions I'm going to make? What do I prioritize day after day? What gets you up in the morning? What keeps you up at night? What do you really want? We're in Luke chapter 14 today. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 15. And here's the scene. Here's the scene before we jump into this. It's a banquet. A feast. It's a church day for Jews, synagogue, but church day for Jews. And and it's after the Sabbath worship. And after the service, the head honcho of the synagogue comes and he invites Jesus over for a big meal, a banquet, a feast that evening. And and then he says to them, here we are. We're in this house full of, here's what I want you to picture. Moderately well-to-do, successful, family-oriented church people. Okay, these are going to be people who, who look a lot like, like just us. People who say that God is number one in their lives. People who, if they died tonight, they would say, I know for sure that I'm going to heaven. People who, if you looked at them, you would say, these are good people. There Jesus is. In the middle of this house full of these good well-to-do, moderately successful, family-oriented, church-going people. And a discussion breaks out, and it happens to be something that Jesus knows a thing or two about. The kingdom of God. So in verse 15, where we pick it up, it says, When one of those at the table heard uh, with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast and the kingdom of God. The feast and the kingdom of God. Now this is an ancient image that, that Jews would have immediately picked up on. It's, it's one of those great ancient images that explains what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God, that God's rule and reign that's going to come to earth, that's going to fill this earth someday, that's coming now. What's it like? Well, it's like the feast. Isaiah calls it this. He calls it a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Isaiah chapter 25. John, in the book of Revelation, is going to call this the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. So this Jew sitting there in this, in this crowd says, happy, blessed, the person, the, the person who ends up at that feast, they're going to be the happiest person in the world because that's what we all really deeply, truly want. 
He pronounces this blessing. And I want you to notice something. This blessing assumes something. It assumes that all the people there in earshot actually want this. It's the type of assumption that you and I would leave alone because it sounds reasonable. Everybody wants to go to heaven, right? Right. But Jesus, he's just not good at leaving things alone. Nope. He stops and he's going to turn to them and say, you know what? This reminds me of a story. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. This banquet is going to be great. The word we would use is, it's going to be epic. He's going to spare no expenses. That Part of the planning process for, for this type of feast back in then is, is you, you, had to, you had to cook. You actually had to slaughter the livestock to prepare for the feast. So he says, he, what he does is he sends out this invite. It's a, it's a formal RSVP. He's going to send it out and say, here's what I want. I'm, I'm going to do this huge feast and I want to invite many, many people. Go find out what the numbers are and we're going to start slaughtering the calves. Verse 17. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his messenger to say to those who've been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they, all alike, began to make excuses. Okay, we have to stop right here. Because nobody gasped. This is supposed to be shocking. This is supposed to be shameful. You're supposed to hear this and be like, (gasps) So let's do this again. Are you ready? But they, all alike, began to make excuses. (gasps) It's shocking. This is shameful. No, don't say it. Okay, in our day, we have banquets. We have feasts. We have connect group meals. In fact, there's one right after church today, Phoenixville, the red group. Had the height this. And you know what? I'm almost certain that there are going to be people who RSVP'd, yes, I'm coming. They won't come. And I'm almost certain there's people who, who haven't yet told this that they're coming that are just going to show up and eat their food. And you know what? I am fairly confident that Greg Haitha is not going to rip his clothes and wear sackcloth and ashes and be publicly shamed by this. Either way, he'll just be happy if you show up. So we have feasts, we have banquets, we have dinners. But this is different. This is, the host is not just inviting them to a dinner here. Banquets in the ancient Near East cost tens of thousands of dollars. So for us today, this would be like t- taking out a second mortgage in order to pay for a meal. It's important to you. But it's not just a money thing. It's a relationship thing. In the ancient Near East, the way that you formed relationships was over food, over a table. It was over a feast. It was over a banquet. That the, the feast, that a banquet was the center and the consummation of all relationships. So this is where strangers became friends, where acquaintances became business partners, where couples became husband and wife. And this is still true in a lot of our world today. Um, how do you get married in Albania? I'll tell you. My brother married an Albanian named Valbona Kukshuri in Pogredets, Albania. And so what do you do? They invited us to come to a five-course feast that literally took the life savings of her father. And so you sit down, the two families come together, and you eat, and you drink, and you catch things on fire, and you dance, and you sing, and everyone's holding hands, dancing in a big circle. And then at the end of the feast, 
Opa, you're married. There's no, no ceremony. There's no pieces of paper. It's a feast. That The feast forms the relationship. That the two families have feasted together and now the couple is together forever. That's what formed it. And this is not just a cultural thing. This is a biblical thing. Just think through the history of the Bible. What does God do when he saves his people from a wicked king named Pharaoh out of Egypt? He invites them to the Passover feast. What does God do when he takes them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai to give them his law to be forever his people with his law? As soon as he does it, he invites them to a giant feast at the foot of the mountain. What does God do year after year after he sends them to the day of judgment, atonement day, Yom Kippur, where they have to go through the process where by the, by the blood of an innocent, innocent sacrifice, they are cleansed, they are forgiven. What does he do after that relationship is restored and healed year after year by this reminder of a perfect sacrifice? He invites them to a great annual feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. What does God do when we come to be part of his family? He invites us to communion. It's the consummation. It's the, it's the realization that we are the family of God by the blood of Christ. So in Luke 14, this host, he just spent his life savings and invited them into relationship with him. And his guests come back with excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Like I just bought this new thing. It's really important to me. And the second said, said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go examine them. Please have me excused that I'm in the middle of a really important project at work right now. I would come, but this project is just pressing on me. And another said, I have married a wife and I therefore cannot come. The back in the ancient Near East, um, this type of banquet was men only. And this guy says, I just got married and an evening with my wife sounds a lot better than an evening with you. Yeah, it means exactly what you think it means. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. He comes back to the master. The master just spent his life savings, spent this exorbitant amount, invited them into a relationship with him. They come back and the servant says, the guests have excused themselves. All of them. That every one of them had something more important to do. Think about this setting. If you would imagine this room right now. The room that Jesus is sitting in. He is in the middle of a house. Of well to do. Moderately successful. Family oriented. Church going people. People who have RSVP'd. Yes. I plan on going to heaven. And here. To these people, do you know what he just said? Jesus just said that some people will excuse themselves from the feast. From a relationship with God now and in the life to come. Because of possessions, projects at work, and spouses. That if you are not careful, your good lives could stop you from experiencing the great feast. Church, he's talking to us. We have more possessions, 
and more projects and more family-oriented good stuff going on than anyone in the history of the world. And the grave danger to our middle-class, moral, moderately successful souls is not murder, it's not corruption, it's not meth, it's not twerking, whatever that is. It's not heresy. It's not Mormonism. It's not Islam. The things that could keep people like you and me out of the kingdom of heaven are a house, a career, a spouse. Then the master of the house became furious. He became angry. This guy's throwing the party. He's furious, and he should be. They didn't just turn down his food. They said to him, basically, you know, I would come to your party. I really would. If I had nothing else going on, but you, you see, I'm part of this really important project at work, or I have this really important thing I just bought, or I have this really important relationship, and you know what? Those all mean more to me than you do. So enraged, he does something outrageous. Watch this. He said to his servant, go quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the cripple and the blind and the lame. Go now. Bring in all of these people. You know, the, 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 the meal is ready. Everything's ready right now, and I don't want it to be rotten. The fillets are perfectly cooked. The ice sculptures, they're melting. We need someone in my house. So what does he do? He says, you know what? If wealthy people are too busy buying stuff, you go find poor people. They'll come to my party. And you have strong people. If they're too successful in their powerful jobs, working new projects to come, then you go invite the weak, the cripples. And you know, if people are too obsessed with all the things, looking at their own lives and all the things in their lives, then you invite people who can't see it all. You invite the blind. And you know, if people are too obsessed with marriage and the pleasures of marriage, then you go invite the lame, literally the maimed. People are so messed up that no one would ever marry them, so they have nothing else going on. You fill my house with those people. It would be my joy to share it with them. I, I don't miss this. These are people who would never, ever, ever, ever have the social status to actually be invited to a regular feast in this culture. And Jesus just said, they're going to get invited to the great feast. Why? How do these people get invited? What is the qualification to get invited to this feast? I want you to pay attention to this. What is the qualification? What, what, is, what does it take to get in? Listen, it's not tricky. You have to want to go. The qualification to get into the great feast is that you have to want to go more than you want the other stuff in your life. Your possessions, your projects, even your spouse. Well-to-do, moderately successful, family-oriented, church-going people, they have lots and lots of things to do. I mean, they're busy, busy, busy. They're important people. They have important projects and they have important needs and important things going on, important things to purchase. They're important. So do they want to go to the feast? Of course they do. They want to go, but they just have other things, more important things to go to, to be about right now. So they pass up on the feast, but the poor, the crippled, the blind, the maimed, getting invited to this feast is like winning the lottery. Like there is nothing in this world that would stop them from going to the great feast. Nothing. And that's why they go. 
Verse 22. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. Verse 23. And the master said to the servant, Go. Go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. I'm waiting to hear this. He's saying, go, find total strangers. Find random travelers who just happen to be walking by and compel them. You know why you have to compel them? Because they've never met the master. You, you have to convince them, oh, my master, he is good. And the party he is throwing is awesome. It's going to be epic. Like, what we're inviting you to, it really is that good. I know you don't know this guy, but I'm telling you, his party is worth it. You should stop your travels right now and come with me. You should compel them. The feast is going to be great. Now, what's so outrageous about this is not that he's giving away luxury banquets to nobodies. That's not really outrageous. That's generous. What's outrageous about this feast is that it's a symbol of relationship, friendship, intimacy. And this host is inviting these people into a relationship with him. This host is inviting random people into his closest relationships. So when I graduated from college, my parents... um, so proud of me, graduated with honor. So they, they have this big banquet at a restaurant and all my family's going to be there and uh, going to be this big thing. And you know, last minute, literally the day of, I tell my parents, I say, my wife's not in here right now. Good. Uh, I, I say, you know what? There's this girl and uh, you know, she doesn't have anything going on today, and she's just going to be all alone at school. I would really love it if I could take her with us to this, to this banquet. And uh, my parents are like, okay, l- let me get this right. You want to invite this random girl to this major milestone of your life? They're like, this family-only event, you want to invite this random girl that we, we don't know at all to, to sit among all your family? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, Okay. And now looking back, like years later, right? I look back at this old photo and I see me and my brother and my parents and my grandparents and my aunts and my uncles and my cousins and this random girl. What's her name? Uh, Jenny. My wife of 11 years. You see, I was pleased not only to invite her to my table, but to share my very life with her. And that's exactly what this host is doing. He's taking random people off the street. And he's not, what's so outrageous about this is he's not just inviting them to to eat his stuff. He's inviting them to share his very life. And that, that's amazing. That's amazing grace. Meanwhile, the well-to-do, moderately successful, family-oriented, church-going people, they didn't want to be part of it. They had more important things to do. So he says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Those people, those people who say they follow me, those people who go to church, those people who say that their life is all about me, they will never taste the kingdom of the God whom they claim to love and serve. End of story done. That's it. 
We sit here and we say, like, what in the world just happened? Like, Jesus, what are you doing? This guy just invited you over to his house. Like, these are good people. How is it that these good people suddenly get disqualified for the kingdom of God because of houses and possessions and wives? When when you say that these cripples and these strangers can get in, what in the world's going on here? And let me state two things that I hope are obvious. One, if possessions and projects and spouses can bar people from the kingdom of heaven, we're in trouble. All of us. But let me state something that I hope is equally obvious, and it's that possessions, projects, and spouses are not the real problem, are they? The problem is not those things, and it's not even wanting those things. But when we want those things more than we want the kingdom of God, that's a problem. When we would rather pursue these things than be part of the kingdom of God. When we think that these things are more important than being with God. When we excuse ourselves from the great feast to do the things in our lives. The things that are pressing needs. Things that are important to us. We're lost. The only way into the great feast is to want to go. To want to be with God more than you want to be with your spouse. To care about the work of God more than you care about your next project or work. To to want to see God more than you want to see your new projects. And this brings us back to the initial problem, right? Our hearts want the wrong things. We're passionate about guys who dress up in fox outfits. and, And guys who smash into each other on a football field and iPhones. We're passionate about things that don't mean anything in eternity. Our hearts are sick. Historically, guys like uh, Augustine, Thomas Kempis, St. Francis de Sales, these fathers of the church, they, they had a title for this sickness. They, they'd called this sickness inordinate affections. Let me unpack this for you. Infections are the things that you love, the things that you want, the things that you desire, the things that that stir your heart, the things that revolt you. They would say that our affections, the things that we want, that they are inordinate, that we excessively, obsessively want things that we shouldn't want and don't want things that we should want. In fact, we want things that are really quite stupid sometimes. While our hearts are completely dead to the things that we should long for. So guys like Augustine and Akimpus and I think Jesus are going to tell us that we should have a logical order to the way we want things. So case in point. I love books. I do. I, I love the way they look. I love the way they smell. I love the way they look on my shelf. And I even love reading them. When, when we were first married, Jenny and I, I used to come home every night with a stack of books. And I would sit down and I would do what I'd always done before we got married. I would sit down and I would have a stack of books and I would start breaking them open and searching through them, reading through them, looking through them. And then, then my, my young bride would come over and she was very annoyed by this. And she would put her hand in front of the page and go like this. And then she'd say, look at me. I'm more interesting than books. And when I finally looked away from my books, I discovered that indeed she is more interesting than books. So I love books. 
and I love my wife, and I should love both of them. I want books, and I want my wife, and I should want both of them. But let's say, let's say one day I'm sitting there drinking my coffee in my little office there. And have you seen my bookshelves? They're, they're screwed into the, the wall there. Let's say I'm sitting in my nice chair reading one of my books, and then the entire bookshelf falls off the wall onto my head. You know, we have ten volumes of the anti-Nicene Fathers bash me in the head, and then suddenly, psh, suddenly something happens where I love my books more than or equal to I love my wife. Imagine I start coming home early just to be with my books. I go on long walks with my books. I write notes to my books. I spend all my extra money on my books. You would say, that's sick. That's wrong. Like, what's wrong with you, man? Books are books. She's a person. And you would notice immediately, that's wrong. Why? Because Jenny, believe it or not, is better than books. Period. She is. That there are certain things that we immediately see that some things are better than others. Some things are inherently more valuable, more honorable, more worth pursuing than others. In fact, we, we can just take this little principle that, that Jenny's better than books and we can apply this across the board. That there are, there's a logical order to the things in life. That some things are better than others. And this forms not just, not just an observation, not just something I feel about, but this forms what we call, philosophers call a moral imperative. That I should love Jenny more than I love books. That if I love books more than Jenny, something is morally wrong with me. And you can apply this across the board. You don't even need to hear this, but this is obvious. But let's just flesh this out for a minute. If someone is more devoted to their fantasy football team than their career, what would you think about that? Some of you actually know some people like this. And you said, that's, that's weird. I don't know if it's morally wrong. It's just kind of stupid. If someone valued their, their career more than their family... Well, that's a little closer to home because we've all seen that, haven't we? And we know what happens to a home when someone values the career more. What if some woman valued the form of her body more than forming her soul? If you have a little girl like I do, you know it's a horrifying reality we live in. What if someone valued their, their cat more than their child? You'd say that's not only wrong, that's sinful, that's sick. Yeah, I mean, we get it. Nobody needs to tell you. Kids go before cats and families before careers and careers before fantasy football. We intuitively know this. We get this. I mean, we might, we might quibble over some of the order. Like, where does, you know, football go versus a date night? We might quibble over this, right? But we all get a sense of this, that there is a logical order. Some things are inherently more valuable, better, more honorable, more worth pursuing, things that we should want and some things we should not want. That's what Augustine's saying. That's what Thomas Akimbus is saying. And that's what I think Jesus is saying here, that things that are inherently better and more valuable should be wanted, cared for, desired, loved more than some things. So Jesus takes this point that we all intuitively know and live by, and he's going to ask us a simple question. Is there anything or anyone more valuable, more lovely, more worth pursuing than God and his kingdom? Is there anyone or anything inherently more valuable, more honorable, more worth wanting and pursuing than God and his kingdom? Is there? No! 
Of course not. We all know that. You don't even have to be a Christian to know this. If the God of the Bible exists, then he is inherently the most valuable thing, the only thing worth truly pursuing in all of the universe, right? And it's not even in the universe. Blessed is the man who will eat at the great feast. Like being part of God's kingdom. That's what it's all about. That's all what we want, right? Right? So the guy stands up in the middle of a crowd just like this crowd and says, that's what we really want, Jesus. We all just want to be part of your kingdom. We all just want to be part of this, right? And he looks around and everyone's like, yeah, that's what I want. So Jesus is going to push them a little. He's going to say, well, wouldn't it be wrong then? If that's what you really want, wouldn't it be wrong if someone were more concerned about having a right house than a right relationship with God? Wouldn't that be wrong? Wouldn't it be weird if someone were more devoted to their latest project at work than God's work of redeeming the universe? Wouldn't that be odd? Like, wouldn't it be wrong if someone were to care more about an evening with their spouse than an eternity with God? Like, if... Jesus, if we actually believe that he is who he says he is, that he's inherently better, more valuable, more worth pursuing than anything else, doesn't it make sense that we would want to be with him more than all the important stuff of our lives? Now, in that room, I'm sure that everyone was like, yes. Of course, I would never miss on the great feast because of those things, Jesus. I mean, don't you know who I am? I am a good, moral, middle-class, church-going person. Don't you know who I am? Every day they would say, I pray the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Of course I will be at the feast. I want God more than anything else. So Jesus is going to push this one last push just over the cliff. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned them and said, If anyone wants to come to me, And does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters. And yes, even his own life. He cannot follow me. Don't you read this and you just think, Jesus, can't you be nice? If these people are following you, this guy invited you over for dinner. Why do, you, why do you have to do that? Why do you have to pull out hate your mother line? Like, are you just trying to be mean? Or are you just trying to crush those who want to follow you and are trying to be good people? You know, I've thought about this. I don't think Jesus is trying to be mean. I mean, he's generally not a mean guy. So you wonder, are, are you just insecure? Do you just need people to say, oh, Jesus, you're better. I would hate my mother if that would make me better in your eyes. Is that what you need? I'm pretty sure Jesus is not insecure. Is he asking because he's not sure what they think? You know, if you read through the Gospels, it becomes perfectly clear that Jesus already knows the hearts of all. So if he's not mean and he's not insecure and he already knows the answer, why? Why would Jesus go and say something horrible like, you have to hate your mother if you want to follow me? Why would Jesus say such an extreme thing? It's because the crowds... The people at that house, you and I, we don't know our own hearts until he pushes us there. We think we would choose God over everything. We say we would choose God over everything. 
But until he calls us out, what about that project at work? What about that new purchase you're making? What about your spouse? What about your family? Are they crowding out the work of God in your life? Are you pursuing them more than you're pursuing me? And when he asks us those questions, suddenly we know our own heart. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we moderately successful, well-to-do, family-oriented, church-going people supposed to do with this message that Jesus just preached? Here's the invitation. Come, everything is ready. Jesus says it this way. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. That the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God is breaking out on our earth and someday it's going to be fully consummated. That it's coming. It's here. Right now, today, you can be part of the work of God. You can experience the presence of God. You can know the blessings of God right now by faith in Jesus Christ and someday you'll fully taste it and see it. The invitation has gone out. But I want you to notice something. Jesus gives us no application. He simply looks at these people and he says, none of you, every one of you is going to miss out on it. You are not going to taste the kingdom of God because of these things. And then he closes up and he moves on. Let me ask you, if you were sitting there that day, if you were invited over after church today, we were to have a little get-together, maybe at the Hythus, and Jesus were to show up and say this to you. If he were to say, you're not going to make it into heaven because of your possessions, because of your projects at work, because of your spouse, because of your obsession with your family, what would you do? Let me first say that some of you don't fit this mold. Some of you are broken. Some of you are desperate. Some of you are destitute. Some of you are spiritual cripples and blind and poor and desperate. And you think that you never deserve the kingdom of God. And let me tell you, you are the people that will get the kingdom of God. So be encouraged today. If you are destitute and broken, it's for you. But most of us, we're busy, busy. We have things to do. I can't make a decision on that today. I've got a new thing I just purchased and I've got this project at work. So what are you going to do? 